Well, thanks again for listening to the Park Hills podcast. If you want any more information on the things that we are doing, sermons, podcasts, other things, go to parkhillschurch.com or use the Park Hills Church app. All right, Pastor Alex. What's up, Chris? Seraphonician woman. Yeah. Lots of things one. to talk about with her. And, you know, the sermon that we, you know, that we kind of worked through as a sermon team, I think covered a lot of the big aspects of, of this story. And I think we did a good job of sort of framing the dog's crumbs conversation, right? Mm-hmm. This whole discussion about this. But there are a number of people that can take these passages a slightly different direction. <clears throat> and I think one of the things that we want to do through the podcast this this week is, or at least this episode, is just spend a little bit of time talking through maybe some of the pitfalls or some of the things that are out there. And I think, to me, this serves a couple of purposes. First, to let people know we are aware of some of the things that are out there. We're not blind to it. Mm-hmm. And secondly... We're not only aware of it, but we rejected big chunks of of this type of theology for various reasons. And so we're going to be careful today with our wording, as careful as we can be. Please do, uh, you know, if you listen to this and you don't love something we said, we'd love a chance to maybe do an episode later that sort of, you know, gives some more color to this or, or paints it in a different light. It gives people a chance to kind of process it. So if you don't love what you hear, we'd love to talk about it. Or if you think you hear something from us that, that you're not aware of us having an opinion on this or that, the other thing, we'd love to have that conversation. But all that to say, <clears throat> this is a very, uh, there's some prominent wings of theology that are, in my opinion, quite dangerous. Right. And so we're going to touch on a couple of those. And with that, you found us a good video that kind of interacts with some of this. We're going to leave names out of it. We're going to just try to stay yeah, as clean as we can, but we'll see where that goes. So, Yeah, yeah. So what we're going to talk about with the story of the Syrophoenician woman, so we're in Mark 7, 24 through 30 is where we find that story, is what we call um, liberal theology and a specific bent of that called liberation theology and how they handle this. And I think if we back up before we dig into this particular passage, I think it's helpful to define, you know, what do we mean when we talk about liberal theology and then specifically liberation theology? So when, you know, when we read God's word, when we put ideas and thoughts together and, I don't know, synthesize them or formalize them or systematize them, there are certain principles that we use to do that. Our type of theology, when we study the Bible, we do something that is a big word just called hermeneutics, and the idea is we're trying to understand what the original writer, so in this case Mark, John Mark, what he was trying to communicate about God and what God was trying to communicate through that to its original audience when it was written, and then when we understand that, we can pull out meaning and principles from what was taught. So we would say things like the Bible was written not necessarily to us. Mark didn't write to me in 2023. Correct. In Freeport, Illinois. But he did write it for me or for my benefit, for me to learn and grow from. So so that's that's how we do theology. Now, 
the some other people do theology different. So if we talk about liberal or liberation theology, Chris, what what are they looking at, or what are they trying to understand about God's word? As you know, <clears throat> you just asked a loaded, huge question. Yeah, give it to us in like two. That I'm supposed like, to answer the question just, just in quick, just a couple of just minutes. Quick hit it. So here's a quick hitter. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Here, here's I think the easiest way to describe a lot of the way theology is done, and and what you're describing. Let's come back to that and just add one little piece to it. Is we believe that the the Gospel of Mark is written by whoever wrote Mark. Like I said, I think John Mark led by the Holy Spirit. So it's actually the Holy Spirit speaking to us through the author, right? Telling us exactly what to think and what right, to do. Right. There, I think when we start talking about liberal theology, part of what concerns me is they begin to approach God's word with a totally different perspective right off the bat. So it's not even necessarily that they, they deny the Holy Spirit, but they might deny the Holy Spirit's superintending over the text. And they might look at it more as authorship. They might start to break down the liberal. Uh, their liberal agenda gives them a breakdown in the scriptures, and they feel like if there's a place where the, the Bible seems to contradict itself, clearly that's the work of human authors who aren't speaking in God's word, and so therefore there's some wiggle room there. So in my opinion, what differentiates liberal from conservative theology, which we would both attest to conservative, which just means we take God's word as it is. We'd rather let it do the talking rather than us do the talking to it. Uh, a liberal theology will typically approach God's word as, here's I have an opinion about something. How does it fit into God's word? And if it doesn't, maybe God's word is wrong. Right. So that's liberal theology. And then one branch of liberal theology is what we would call liberation theology. And part of what liberation theology is, is doing, it, it comes out of, and this is where it gets a little weird, and you're asking a way bigger question than people realize, uh, and so I'm trying to be careful with how I say this. Karl Marx, the philosopher of the 1800s, kind of one of the, he's overshadowed political science and a number of other things for the last 150 years, created some concepts that basically... He, he rejected former philosophy and began absorbing an idea that comes from Hegel, which is one of his mentors, called the Hegelian dialectic. And it, it, what it pushes back on is this. It starts to say a system is broken, and the only way to fix the system is to push back and create a new system. The issue with Marxism, as many have talked about, is what really starts to happen is you're breaking down a system over and over and over again because you never get to perfection. You're never actually going to find that perfection. So they're often, when I'm, when I'm talking to someone who's working through Marxism or thinking about Marxism, they are looking for a utopian view of humanity that does not exist. And they think if we just keep breaking down the systems, eventually mankind will just have the utopia that we're always looking for. Well, so liberation theology looks at, at the systems that have been in place some of them call themselves Christian, whether they are or not, that might have racial overtones, might have overtones that, that push on a cultural you know, idea or something that gives somebody a, a way of looking at Scripture saying, the Bible doesn't apply to me. Maybe the Bible should. So maybe we need to break down the whole system and make the Bible say what we want it to say and kind of go for it. So you know, in, in today's world, we might use words like woke, or we might use words like progressive. And the idea there is we're saying we don't like where things were, conservative. We want to push forward to what could be next, progress. We want to, But the problem with the progressive move 
in this, and this is not a political statement. We're not here. Right. Uh, some of these words, I know you could start to blend them and make them political or something else. I'm not even, uh, we're not using any of the words in that way. I'm merely talking philosophy here. What a, what a liberation theology is attempting to do is have a philosophical bent that says the system is broken and the scripture is part of the reason why the script, why the system is broken. We must read the scriptures through a new light so therefore we can be liberated and now apply a new version of that philosophy onto our culture or our text or whatever and make the Bible say what would, would bring it along. And this became very common in you know the late 1800s, early, early 1900s, and then really took off in the 1950s as colonialism was beginning to break down. Nation states all around the world were breaking off from their colonial oppressors. And people were looking at it saying, well, Britain has run the show, or Portugal or Spain has run the show for this long. We are breaking down, and the only reason why we have problems in our society is because we've not been liberated. Theology should allow us to be liberated now that it is. Here we go, and let's right. read the Bible differently and look at it differently. Right. And How's that for a few minutes? That's, that's great. <laughs> I'm going to add to it, actually. Good. Uh, yeah, because when we look at Marxism, right, Marxism has that idea of breaking things down and specifically doing it by the lower class breaking the upper yep. class, right? So the the ruled class breaking down the ruling class. Sure. And so we see that over and over again, and that's where liberation theology has kind of latched onto that idea because they will, how that plays out, they will look at Scripture and see Jesus came to liberate people. The gospel is all about liberating people from their oppressors. Which, quick pause, we agree yeah. That Jesus came to liberate everyone. Right. So keep but, going. But how that liberation exactly. happens, right, is is you then start categorizing. Here's where, like, Marxist ideas come in, and this is kind of just a broad overview, but you need to then categorize oppressor and oppressed, and you need to tell the oppressed to overthrow the oppressor. So everybody's got to be sorted. This is kind of my critique of, of Marxism. Everybody's got to be sorted into are you an oppressor or are you an oppressed person, mm-hmm. and then... The gospel means all of us turn, just flip those people, flip that that thing up. And it, it, to me, it's it's like the hourglass metaphor, right? Like, okay, we're gonna flip it upside down, right. but now the who once was oppressed is now the oppressed. Like, it just yeah. If we have to categorize people in one, as we raise one up, we lower the other, and now they're uh, you know opposite of each other. Totally. And, and now you have to flip it, and they, because there is no like utopia, right? That that we're going to achieve. So, yeah, and I, I think a, another important point to make as you were discussing things is it's all of these terms, you have to take American politics out of it because we use these terms at their base definition. So things like conservative and liberal. We're not talking about the the political parties in America Correct. right now. Like we're Correct. not we're not making points uh, about those uh, progressive. Uh, the, there's a little bit of politics in that, but not necessarily. We're not always using the progressive party when we're talking about these kinds of things. Correct. These are theological terms that have been used in theological spheres for a long time. So that's where we're going with this. All that to say, the liberal theology and liberation theology, like you're saying, Chris, tends to take some of these and apply the mindset of it's less important that we understand what Mark was writing to his people at that day, and it's more important what we get out of it today. Like, let's, let's take these words and apply them to our current situations 
let's identify with certain characters. So their hermeneutics are, are a little off. They're, they're reading it with a bent that everything is all about this liberation, oppressed, oppressor idea. So in a passage like this, this really comes out. And, yes. And so we're going to, let's dig into the passage now and let's piece out some of these things. Um, I'm going to mark chapter 7. I'm just going to read a portion of it. If you got a Bible at home, read it. Read it on your phone, whatever. Verse 26 says, Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And so liberation theology, theology that has to separate people into oppressor and oppressed, is immediately going to tag this woman as oppressed because she's Gentile, she's Syrophoenician. In fact, one of the liberal scholars uses these terms to call her a woman of color. Like she is a woman of color. Right. And and here's where the hermeneutical leap happens that it's like we call sometimes we call this theological gymnastics because you have to twist and bend to make it all work. He then says, see, she's a woman of color and relates that to a woman of color in our modern society. And so all the things that we think about when you hear the term woman of color and all of the disadvantages and challenges that that life has, he then takes all of that from our modern day and reads that into her situation. He says she's a woman of color uh, because she's a Gentile and a Syrophoenician. She's not the same as Jesus. Can, so Can I just jump in there for yeah. a second and, and, and show why this doesn't always work for folks? The Phoenicians were light-skinned seafarers right. who moved into dark-skinned territory and wiped everyone out. So what's ironic here is this woman might actually be better off than Jesus or any of his disciples. Right. She might actually have a higher ranking in society and everything else than anybody else. That, she, And the fact that she's Syrophoenician is merely a location and a description, but she might actually be the whitest person in this entire story. We don't know that, but I'm just yeah. saying when we use words like person of color, it shows you already how you're 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 viewing the text through the lens you want to view it through without actually doing historical research of any kind. Right. And I can understand illustratively, maybe he's trying to point out like, oh, how would she be viewed? She might be viewed like a woman of color, even if she wasn't totally technically that. Like I can get that. Like to 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 do my best to read this particular scholar at face value, at what he's trying to communicate. Like, to, part of me is like, okay, I can see illustratively, but realistically, you cannot take everything that that term means to us today and dump it on this woman in Jesus' exactly. day. And that's where the problem is. Exactly. Right? And, and part of what I'm saying there is what's ironic is the Jews are the people of color in the ancient world. Yeah. If you're looking for someone who's oppressed and downtrodden and held back, it's the Jews. So then when you read this, the Syrophoenician Gentile, she might actually be looked at by everyone else as way higher class than a Jew. Right. So she's actually groveling to someone who in some ways is yeah. lower than her. Yeah. So the whole system starts to break down pretty immediately. And, and we're just you know extrapolating some details here, but I'm just showing you when you actually step into the first century world, already the system starts to break down and makes me want to approach the text at its value right. rather than the cultural. Keep going. So uh, that's step one. Uh, continuing to read, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter, and she said to him, "Let the little or and he said to her, sorry, 
Let the little children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. So step two in this is that Jesus used a racial slur Correct. and called her a dog. Because, again, if I were to call someone a dog today, that would be quite an insult. Correct. I, I would, like, could never think of a situation where I'd call someone a dog. But, so today, let's take today's meaning of that term, calling someone a dog. We can't take that and then add it into this story. What is Jesus communicating when he's calling her a dog? Right. I think your sermon did a really good job of describing the diminutive that he uses, like he's calling her more of a puppy, and he's not even calling her that directly. Mm-hmm. He's making a statement. Um, I think I think this is a test for Jesus. I think more than, you know, Mark points out mm-hmm. that she's a Gentile and a Syrophoenician, not to say she's lesser than him, but to point out that she is from an area that has a lot of pagan influence. She very well could have been the type of person who was polytheistic and Jesus is just the next guy she's asking. Like she's prayed to this God, she's sacrificed at this temple, she's done this cult ritual, and all of a sudden there's a teacher who you know, was trying to be hidden, right? That's what what verse 24 says. He's trying to come slowly. She finds out and she's like, ah, I've tried one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Let's try number eight. If eight doesn't work, I got nine, 10, 11, 12, 13. You know, Mm -hmm. like I'm just going to go through all all the list here. And so I think what Jesus is saying, and my understanding and reading of this, and I I think yours as well, is that Jesus is saying, my mission is to the Jews first, and that's all throughout scripture, right. and the Jews are going to bless the nations, uh, what he's trying to communicate to her is, I'm not, I'm not just a, a random traveling healer who's trying to heal all, you know, like right. anybody who runs up to me. I have a specific mission here, and his statement is, is to prove in her mind how she responds is either going to say like, oh, okay, like I thought you were just another one of these traveling healer persons, or she's going to say, no, I recognize that you are someone different. I recognize that mission and I'm willing to come under that mission. Exactly. I think that's where that's where his question is. So he's not he's not calling her a racist term. The the interesting thing is that uh, the, one of the liberal theologians will say that we need to stop saving Jesus from himself. You know, we just try to answer out all these questions. Jesus wasn't really racist. Stop saving Jesus from himself. Jesus called her a racial slur. Just read it for what it is. And it's like, that's not reading it for what it is. And not only is it not that, but what's so ironic with some of this agenda, and I'm going to call it an agenda with liberal theology, is we have now removed ourselves for 2,000 years from texts like this. And what's ironic is the word dog did not have that same connotation at the time of Christ that it does today. And part of the reason why it actually has the connotation today is people have misunderstood what's being said in this very verse, and they've now applied it. So like when you're watching Aladdin and he steals some bread and they say, that ungrateful little dog, we need to go chase him, we are buried in a culture that has used this word in a racial way. Yeah. And what's ironic is we've actually just misunderstood what's going on and we've made it racial. So now we look back at the text through our lens saying, this is exactly what's going on. When back to what you're saying, I, I totally agree with what you're, you're saying there. And part of what he's communicating to her is little dogs look for scraps everywhere. And if you've been looking for scraps at all these different gods, I'm not just another one of those. Right. But my children will feed you. Give me a little bit. 
right? And, right. And, and we're a few months away from him dying on the cross, rising from the grave, and his disciples then going out to places like Syrophoenicia to tell exactly what happened through Jesus. So it's, this isn't an issue of, I don't love you enough to not do this right now. It's, you don't understand the mission, and I would expect that Jesus in whatever omniscience is going on here knows you're going to have time. Your daughter's going to be fine. We're going to get to you soon, just not right now. And her response is so great. Right. Her response is, yes, Lord. Yeah, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. What what she's saying there is that I am willing to submit to your plan. I see exactly. your plan. She's recognizing Jesus as someone special. Now, does she understand he's Messiah? Well, the disciples haven't quite understood exactly what Messiah means yet. So I wouldn't say like, oh, she understands that Jesus is Messiah, but she understands that Jesus is sent from God, mm-hmm. from the true God. And so by her her response of faith, that's where Jesus heals. Now, if you read this, the third place where the liberal theologians really go wrong, this one particular guy uses this term. He says, she was successful because she spoke truth Mm -hmm. to power. And then he takes this story as a way for us to learn today how to do that oppressor, oppression, oppressed interaction. If he... To God. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So That we are oppressed by the God of the universe, and so therefore we're taking this oppressor down by using right. our truth to power. And so and then he then the application is anytime you feel like you're being oppressed mm-hmm. or mistreated or you know or he uses racism, he uses sexuality, all those kinds of things, the proper response is to respond like this woman did to Jesus, to speak truth to power, yep. to hold your ground and then they will let up or something. So that that's what he tells his congregation. Speak truth to powers, you know. But that's, you know, you can see in there that undercurrent of, of that Marxism, we have to then decide who is in power and who is not. We have to categorize everyone as either oppress, oppressor or oppressed. Mm-hmm. And the oppressed, their job is to speak truth to power in order to make those powerful oppressors, no longer oppressors, and they use this passage. And so verse 29, Jesus said to her, for your statement, you may go your way. They would say it's because she spoke truth to power. She changed Jesus' mind. This is the, you know, don't rescue Jesus from himself. Jesus changed his mind, and they would say from this point forward now, Jesus starts going to the Gentiles, because he never has at this point, according to them. Uh he then like rethinks his whole mission. He's yep. like, maybe I shouldn't just be the Jewish, Jewish Jewish Messiah. Maybe I should be Messiah to the whole world because it all started in this interaction. And the problem with that, Alex, is <laughs> Genesis. <laughs> but he, not, it, it's, it, it's it's right there. It's, it's totally in Genesis. It's all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, and, and it's and already Mark, happened in Mark. Mark. Yeah, he's gone to Gentile territory multiple times at this point. Yeah. Hello, the the, the the demoniac. Yeah, it, like this is. It just, it's so infuriating to me because what it does is it takes the text and makes it say what we want it to say rather than doing the hard work of digging just a little farther. And I think what they say is we try to defend Jesus and and get Jesus off the hook for what Jesus says. The fact is, no, we see Jesus as the Messiah of the universe who is God incarnate in the flesh, walking on the planet, who can do no wrong. So if our theology is right, which it is, like the Bible's clear on that, then we need to take the text at its value and go, this doesn't feel right to me. We need to dig a little more. Let's figure this out, which is what we are attempting to do with our sermon right. team, with, with the time that we, we put a lot of time into these things. 
pressing into some of these hard issues. We argue with each other on some of these things, not you and I, but sometimes you and I do, but I'm saying like the whole team, we kind of push on each other here to say, what is the text actually saying? And then how does that apply to today? I would rather take that approach hermeneutically than what we're describing with liberal theology. Right. And then what we have to do is we have to take that approach and we have to apply it to every single passage of scripture. Mm -hmm. And so here it might in there, you know, from an outsider opinion, oh, it helps you explain Jesus uh, you're just, you know, explaining that away. There are a lot of other times, like we're going to take that approach mm-hmm. when we talk about divorce in a couple weeks here. And that is a challenging passage to confront against what's what our modern culture is. We can't switch our, our hermeneutic, was the word we would use. Yep. We can't switch our hermeneutic when we get into those things. Uh, and so that's that's the challenge of understanding Scripture. Like we have to have a consistent hermeneutic. And if we're going to do that, we have to have it here, too. Yeah. Like we can't change it for this one. And so here's why this is important. This is not just an academic study for uh, for Chris and I to say, hey, there's some other things going around, just so you're aware, but we're going to you know, talk and use some big words. I think what's really important is I see these kinds of ideas creep into church all the time because we don't always consider the hermeneutic behind interpretations like this. Yes. Like, we'll see, like, Jesus is love. God is a God of love. And so for him to condemn anyone, that doesn't that doesn't combine with love, right? We, we hear statements like that, and some that starts to creep into our hearts and our minds. But that's not, that's not biblical and scriptural. Making that jump that love means acceptance, mm-hmm. right? That sounds good, and it sounds nice, but that is a, that is a bad hermeneutic, right? But we, we see that all, and, and mm-hmm. I have a... A friend I know from from way back in the day who uh, was a solid Christian and is now a universalist. He believes that everybody. He says that he at worst is an annihilationist, which means that if you don't if you don't trust Christ when you die, you cease to exist. Like hmm. there's no eternal conscious punishment that Scripture describes. Um, he would say that you're either at worst annihilated, and at best there's like. Uh, our loving God is so loving that he would create a post-death way for you to be rehabilitated back to, you know, full communion with God. Mm-hmm. Scripture doesn't describe that at all. Mm-mm. Like, it, it describes completely the opposite, yet that has creeped into this guy's heart and his life because it because it sounds good. It sounds nice. It It reflects our modern sensibilities. We don't want anyone to be hurt. We don't want anyone to be in pain, but that's not our hermeneutic. Like we have to read the Bible right. and understand what God is trying to communicate yep. to us. And so why it's important that we discuss issues like this is, you know, you may have heard or you may hear in the future different pieces coming across where you're like, oh, that, that doesn't quite sound right. Well, usually there's a big underlying current that's making that idea pop up. So here, like, if you see this, like, Hey, you should if you oppress if you're being oppressed, speak truth to power. Like that sounds good. That sounds great. Mm-hmm. But the undercurrent there is this is this this liberation theology, which is pulling from Marxism, which is pulling from your whatever your dichotomy or what mm-hmm. that was um, the Hegelian dialectic. Dialectic. Sorry, it's super annoying. Yeah, these are all pulling from those things. You you get to a nice sounding phrase but the foundation is is crumbling. Absolutely. That's why it's important we talk about these things. 
And I feel like before we end this podcast, we probably need to define hermeneutics. So the, the word hermeneutic just means it is the study of interpretation. It's basically a scientific term to describe how you go about interpreting a text. Mm-hmm. So if I read Mary had a little lamb as a song, and my interpretation is, uh, you know, I want to I want to look at it from my perspective and make it say what I want it to say. I would I would approach it. What is it trying to say? As opposed to what was the original author trying to say versus what does the song really mean? All yeah. those types of things. And and just understand, we are walking a fine line and a balance all the time when we approach scripture because there are moments where, and I'm sure you feel the same way, where I'm going, I can't fully understand the mind of God. I, right. it, the Psalms say that. How can I possibly look at you and understand you completely? You've given us your text. I'm going to do my best to understand it. But at the end of the day, God, you're so much bigger than me. So how, why are you giving me this? Why, who is man that you're mindful of him? Why would you give us any of this stuff? So then I go, okay, great. If, if I'm trying to approach the mind of God, I'm going to do so, trying to do so from his point of view and understand him first and then his text and then go from there. And sometimes it's really hard to do. And it's, but that's our hermeneutic. What we're going to choose to do as a church is look at the world, look at the Bible, look at all of this through the lens of what is the Bible trying to say to the original audience? And then how do we then take what was said to the original audience and apply that to what would be said to today's audience? Right. Right. And that's, that's important. That's our hermeneutic. I think a, a good example of this is uh, I was in a class at a, at a public community college, and it was an American lit class. So we read uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Sure. Right. Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards. Um, and we had to talk about, uh, you know, what we got out of it or what was meaningful to us. Now, there are certain hermeneutics for reading uh writings, literature, such as this. Now, one hermeneutic, although they would not use that term, is called the reader response theory. And basically the idea is, well, all literature is art, and art is supposed to create an emotion or a feeling inside of you. So when you interact with that piece of art, what emotions, thoughts, feelings does that stir inside your mind? And that's where you get meaning from from what's happening in your mind, and it's called reader response. You read, then you respond, and how that makes you feel. So I remember sitting in this in this public class, and if, if you know the story behind Jonathan Edwards, that, that piece of literature is a sermon. It's a sermon manuscript, and when he spoke it, when he gave the sermon, he was passionate, he was angry, and people were, like, throwing themselves mm-hmm. on the floor, weeping and crying and wailing because he was so strong on the sin of the people that he was preaching to and they were realizing their sin and it was like a big turning point in revivalism and all yeah, that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Now I had a student in my class, a fellow classmate who when we were asked to discuss this, she said, she's like, well, I, this just comes across to me as nonchalant in the professor was like well what do you mean she's like oh you know just when i read it it's just it's just nonchalant it's just he's just saying these things and you know just when i read it i'm just like nah, okay <laughs> and i was expecting as, as a young college undergrad college student at this time in a community college i was expecting the professor to push back on that and she didn't she was just like oh okay wonderful wow that's great that you got that feeling i'm like i'm like nonchalant 
people were were throwing themselves in the aisle and mm-hmm. and scream crying because they were so convicted yeah. and and you think this is nonchalant this is clearly not actually nonchalant but in this classroom that was taken as uh meaning right that was meaning to you that right. was that's how you got that's what you got out of it that is great because you found your meaning in this passage that is an example of a different type of hermeneutic that when we look at scripture we say and, and this is, I think, maybe a good difference. One of the differences between conservative and liberal theology, not conservative and liberal politics, conservative and liberal theology, is the hermeneutic, our, the reader response versus, uh, you know, the the hermeneutic of of what did this mean at the at the original time when was it written, and then the process of making that meaningful to us today we call contextualization. Reader response, there's no contextual. The, the contextualization is immediately. What did, it, what did I figure out? How does it fit my context immediately? There's no digging into the text itself. So right. that's that's a, an, just an example yeah. of, of our, our hermeneutic versus maybe some other hermeneutics that we would disagree with. Yeah, which basically this whole episode is about, yeah, a hermeneutic that decides to take its cues from the culture at large and what we are dealing with and trying to make it say what they wanted to say. And we're saying, that's dangerous. We're not going to do that. Right? That's right. That's right. That's right.